Voice of Fintech. Welcome to Voice of Fintech Asia Pacific series. As in Voice of Fintech podcast so far, here you will hear inspirational stories of entrepreneurs, corporate innovators, investors, ecosystem hub leaders from or close to the world of fintech. Asia Pacific series will be hosted by amazing hosts based in the region, speaking to the leaders from Asia Pacific. Here is another one hosted by Chia. Hi, welcome to the Voice of Fintech podcast. My name is Chia, the host for the Asia Pacific series. And today I am very privileged to have Neil, the co-founder of Arrow. Neo is a experienced fintech executive and operator in Southeast Asia, working for the top marquee fintech companies in the region, and is now embarking on a very exciting YC-backed company of his own. Hi, Neo. It's great to have you. You've had a long career as a fintech executive and now founder. Tell us a little bit about yourself and what makes you passionate uh, about what you do. Hey, Chia. Thanks for having me. It's my honor to be here. Yeah, so I've dropped into the payments uh, bandwagon like everyone else by chance. And I've been stuck there ever since. So I've been doing payments at Lazada early days. I was doing Grab Pay, early team that started Grab Pay in Southeast Asia for Grab. And then moved on on a little China adventure, Tencent. So I guess you can say passionate about payments and fintech, but more so in, in the payments and e-commerce side of things, because that's really where I've spent a lot of my time in all these different companies, even though they're all like working on different areas or different like use cases. But in the end, it's all about allowing people to buy online uh, or even offline. So that's why I guess I've stuck with it. And with Arrow, we've kind of gone deeper down the rabbit hole, uh, just looking at a very specific pain point in you know payments and e-commerce, which is... Got it. So I know maybe just to flesh out your, your background a little bit more, because I think you're being uh, very humble about all the experiences you had. You were at and Financial, you were country manager for a number, a number of different countries there. You were at GrabPay, you helped to launch um, the Grab payments business, which obviously is a behemoth in Southeast Asia. You were also with Tencent, helping them with their fintech strategy. And so you've worked for quite a number of, of these large companies before landing at Arrow. So maybe love to dive into Arrow a little bit more. Can you tell us a little bit more about Arrow, the problem that it's solving and your journey into coming across this particular? Yeah, sure. It's actually because of, I guess, the experiences I had at all these companies. So yeah, I didn't want to talk too much about my past experiences at Lazada when we were managing payments as HelloPay or after that as Ant Financial. One of the biggest problems as a big e-com marketplace was always about conversion. We were always wondering, one of the metrics was conversion rates. How could we improve this? How could we get people, you know, more people through the funnel, getting the funnel. And then we did this through many like different means. You know, like sometimes it's about payment mix. Sometimes it's about UI, UX. But yeah, we, Lazada has basically hundreds of people or like at least Alibaba, right? It's hundreds of people, maybe thousands even if you could engineers working on this like one very seemingly small problem, right? Like conversion. How can we get more people you know, through the funnel to buy things? And then I grabbed pretty much similar, even though we were in the wallet space. Of course, early days, it was getting signups, people to adopt the wallet. But today, as Grab goes online into online, conversions was becoming a very big topic there. 
how can we get more people checking out? I think Visa Master did a survey last year. Like 75% of people just drop off for very reasons that could be avoided. Things like too many fields to fill in. In some countries, you have checkout pages that still ask for your landline, ask for your office address as mandatory fields. So these are like little things that could prevent a drop off, right? And then when I was at Tencent, same thing, I got to look at all these companies across the world, LATAM, Europe, and of course, Southeast Asia. Everyone's also working on the same problem, solving it in different means. And then, and I guess the final learning, the biggest learning was when I was in China. And then I was looking at how WeChat Pay was helping like JD achieve like insane conversion rates, right? As well as Pintodoor and any other, let's say, e-store selling on the WeChat mini program ecosystem. Um, checkout is seamless, man. One click, you apply your details, you're out. No questions asked. With JD and some of these e-commerce sites, sometimes even the promo codes pre-filled. Hey, you know, it's not like what else, you, what out here. Like you, you see a promo code few, actually it's the biggest reason for drop-off. You drop off and you try to find the promo code somewhere online and then you just never come back, right? Uh, but in China, they just see this, right? Put in the promo code and then you're out. They just want you to buy something. And, and so I just got... I guess I've been exploring the space, got very curious about it. And then I think when COVID came and the whole region for stuff is shut down, retail went to nothing. As the people started like shopping online, right? In my rural attention, I got to look at a lot of, I guess, our partners who were facing these issues. And then very quickly, I could see that, hey, look, the marketplaces like Shopee, Zada, Tokopedia in Asia, they've not solved this issue of conversion, but they just got hundreds of people fixing this problem. And then if you sell on their marketplaces, you leverage that you know, that super optimized checkout experience. But what happens when you sell your independent brand, you, you choose not to sell marketplaces because you want your brand identity. You want to have a direct connection to your customers. And then we see this rise of D2C brands who, who are digital first, very strong positioning, branding, connection to their users. And you also see a lot of big brands because old school retail is now dead. They're now selling online and trying to refocus on their own sites, right? Their brand.coms, uh, if you will. And then it just hit me and I guess my co-founder, Sebastian, right? we just like, hey, look, if marketplaces have solved this or haven't solved this, but are still trying to optimize, then what's going to happen to these brands and these like DTC uh, companies, right? They're just going to feel the big pain point of checkout like conversion rates because they're going to be at where Lazada or these marketplaces were in the early days, right? No, not much learning on optimizations. They're going to face 95% drop-offs, no questions asked. And it's going to hit that business. So we thought that, hey, look, it makes sense to start a company just solely focused on this one problem and with a very specific customer persona, right? which is these guys, the brand.coms, the DDC brands who want to sell online and not on marketplaces. And so, yeah, so that's why we, we set out to build a company to build checkout, to optimize that for these brands uh, to help them sell more effectively. Yeah, so that's why Arrow was kind of uh, formed. Got you. Now, thanks a lot. So... You talk about conversions and improving that. Is it accurate to describe Arrow for the benefit of the listeners as one-click checkout for Southeast Asia, targeting the DTCs, the brands? Yeah, I think one-click checkout is like a marketing spew. It's easy to get, right? We tell people like, hey, look, you check out in one-click. Oh, wow, tell me more. But then the devil's in the details, right? I think in the US and Europe or developed markets, companies have been doing this for a long time and they can really do a single-click or I guess in Southeast Asia's world or today's world, one tap is more relevant, right? On the mobile screen, check out. But that's because cards is the only way or the main way to pay, right? In, in these countries. So in the US, you accept cards, um, you cover, I, I would say like you know, majority of the population, people can shop online. 
But in Southeast Asia, it's a different story, right? You cover cards, you do one click, and then you get like maybe less than 20% of Southeast Asia's population. And the rest is spread across all these new payment methods, like you know, bank transfers is getting pretty big. Uh, Real-time payment infrastructure is being built, and that's why it's getting popular. You have digital wallets who are going out on their own, and now you're first, you have buy now, pay later players, and who knows whatever will come. So I think Southeast Asia will continue to be this like, I guess like cauldron of like thousand payment methods where you know, new ones will always come up and people can pay with all these different payment methods. It's almost impossible to build, at least today, like a, a one-click checkout for all these payment methods for bank transfers. How do you do that? Authentication, you know, authorization, a lot of issues around identity and security. So I would say we're more focused on building like an amazing checkout experience for the people of Southeast Asia and the brands here to be really relevant to the local markets. And of course, we can do one-click checkout and we will work with all these payment methods to try to get there. But I, I would say as of today, we're not doing that for all payment methods. We're doing that definitely for cards. We're slowly doing that for some of the e-wallets. And of course, bank transfers, it's, it's going to take some time. But definitely that's where we're working towards. Got it. So I, if I understood what you're saying, the one-click piece, which is well-known in developed markets, is it certainly a piece of the proposition at the moment, but you have to take into account the fragmented nature of payments in Southeast Asia, the different concentration of bank transfers versus e-wallets versus credit cards, and then be able to optimize and build products around shortcutting that, that checkout process, increasing that conversions across this wide spectrum, which is something that I suppose if you just flew in straight from San Francisco, you probably wouldn't uh, have occurred to you that this is something to to really spend a lot of time on it. Is that a correct characterization? Yeah, it, it certainly is. And I think the one-click checkout is, is simplifying it. And if you look at, if you look at like cash on delivery in Southeast Asia, it is one-click checkout. You click it, you buy, you know, and then you wait for it to come. And then of course you can reject it, right? Buy now, pay later are increasingly becoming also like one-click checkout, right? You, you click, you buy, spread over three months, and then you worry about payments later on. So I think there are many novel ways um, to solve the pain point of convert. Traditionally, the solution is to reduce the number of clicks, increase the speed. That is one way. And then people have done this via, via credit. People have done this via uh, smart UI UX. People have done this via like credit cards, which uh, debit cards, which is payment infrastructure optimization. So I think there are just many ways to approach the problem. And then people are just solving it from different angles. And then of course, obviously it's just with at this layer and complexity of thousands, hundreds of payment methods. It just makes it even harder to build a, a checkout experience that just works across all of them. Got it. Okay, that makes sense. Maybe just for listeners to understand, can you give us a little bit of sense of the timeline? So you mentioned you started roughly during COVID. If you could maybe give us a sense of when this started, um, any how you've thought about the product along the way and where you guys are at now. Yes, we started last year, we started talking about it, I think mid 2020, but it was not until towards the end of the year, I think in, in October, where things got really heated, like I think me and Sebastian is my co-founder, we were like, okay, look, if we're doing this, we're doing this, if not, we're never doing this. So it's that first time entrepreneur issues, right? You want to stay on the safe side of things, do a side hustle and hopefully it grows into something big. But I feel like that's never worked out for, at least for us. So we, I was like, okay, dude, if we're doing this, I'm quitting. And then I, I just did that. I just like having resonation, bought a one-way ticket back to Singapore. And that's where we met. But anyway, yeah, that, that's how it happened. So in November, I found myself back in Singapore. I had no job and then you had no choice but to start a company. 
Uh, so that's how we forced it upon ourselves. But it was pretty fun. So I think in, in, in November, we started this journey of trying to build a company. And then we went out to just validate the idea with a lot of, I think, mentors, advisors, and customers. And uh, I think by December, because checkout is a very foreign idea in this part of the world, I would say, I would even say maybe we were one of the first few to, to try to attempt this in, in Southeast Asia. So when we're going out, everyone was like, oh, are you building a new payment gateway? It's a crowded market. It's a no-go, right? I wouldn't back this idea. You know, a lot of feedback like this, you get a lot of rejections from VCs, from angel investors because you know, payments and I think checkout is a very, I wouldn't say complicated, but hard to you know, differentiate what they really are. Payments is all about routing, infrastructure, off rates, right? Checkout is, payments is part of, checkout is like identity, checkout is loyalty, promo codes, Checkout is billing, shipping address. Checkout is then payments and risk and fraud. So it's hard to, to tell people about the idea. So we had, a, I think, an early pre-seed round. We raised a bunch from people. In January, we, we started to build the company. But I think what helped is, I guess, our peers in, in the US. So out of nowhere, uh, this company fast. It just raised like 20 mil from Stripe. And then quickly followed that up with 100 million. And then suddenly investors were calling us again. I know what you're doing now. You're doing this. I'm like, yes, yeah, maybe we're doing that. And oh, I want to invest now. And then uh, I think there was, I think there was good traction. Also a reflection of the Southeast Asia VC ecosystem. So that was how we, we started. Very hard to convince people. Only some crazy people who backed us. And uh, generally we started building the company. We got our CTO on board, Sudan, who's been amazing. April, we shipped the first uh, beta product with about five online sellers who were crazy or stupid enough to trust us. With payments, uh, everything broke, of course. And yeah, at least we fixed it. We got up and running. We got lucky, got accepted into YC, which, which was about June this year. Finished the program. YC is amazing. I think that's another story. But it pushed us to launch, like really broken product. Don't care. Launch. Fix it along the way. And then because of YC, we grew from, I think, less than 20, 30 transactions a month to processing about like 150K USD by, in the, by, by three months, actually. So I think that's, that was the really crazy part of YC that they pushed you to, to launch and iterate really fast. Uh, and then because of that, we, we raised our seed round. And then now, fast forward to today, we are live in two countries, Singapore and Malaysia. We're um, working with more than 10 gateways at the moment. And we have more than 80 plus uh, merchants on board who are using Arrow to power at checkout. So yeah, that's the story so far. Got you. No, thanks a lot, Neil. Definitely, I think the piece on, on you uh, quitting uh, your job and just going for it. I think that's definitely uh, super inspirational. Yeah, that's a bit of that. And maybe while we're talking about your journey building Arrow, what has been one of the more surprising things that you've built, maybe about the company, maybe about the team or the business model that you've learned while building Arrow and over the, the, the past year now? Sure. I don't know. I think it's a classic case of a first-time entrepreneur. So you think that at big companies, I was like, grab, I was at Lazada. And these were like eventually really big companies, right? A Grab Financial Group. I mean, GrabPay is Grab Financial Group today. Lazada has been acquired by Alibaba and then M Financial is actually payments there. And then you think as, a, as an employee, you feel like, oh, look, I've helped all these big companies launch their businesses, right? I have it in me to do it by my, myself. So you, you always think it's so easy, right? Because you, you feel that you've done it with these companies. And then when you're out doing this yourself, you realize it's a different story. When you don't have the branding behind you, you're on your own, your own man. And then I think it's a, it's a really different ballgame. One, from closing partnerships or I guess contracts to 
I think executing on strategy, I think that's one of the toughest parts to realize what you've drawn out on the whiteboard. But I would say like, in all these are very classic cases of things that you've heard of before. But I think the most interesting thing so far has been in raising money. I did not expect this. So I know at the start, I told you it was really difficult because the idea was so foreign and there was no like precedent in Southeast Asia of anyone doing something like that. It's impossible to raise money. We've almost were begging for money. And then fast forward to to a few months ago because suddenly there was so much hype about like checkout and then no one could find you know, anyone doing it in Southeast Asia. It became like ridiculous, right? We had to say no to, to so much money. And then, yeah, I, I, for me, it was like a big like aha moment right? as, a, as an entrepreneur raising capital in Southeast Asia. It's yeah. difficult because the venture scene here is so new across Southeast Asia and risk-taking appetite, um, the way they think about like investments, it's very different, right? We took money from, in the end, a US, US fund, uh, very well known. They have a regional arm here and they were, it's a very different story, right? They were like, Hey, look, we have a thesis. You fit into that thesis. This is our play for Southeast Asia. You fit in here. I like what you're doing. You have a good team. You have some good traction. I'm backing you. But the other VCs were like, tell me more about what you're doing. Clearly we like haven't done their homework. We're also looking for a lead. So I think that was. Yeah, just a realization from a Southeast Asian founder, like trying to raise money, which is how like the VC scene is evolving. And then I realized there's just so much more international players here in Southeast Asia as well. Yeah, so that's one of the few things I've learned. Got it. Okay. No, I think that makes a lot of sense. Maybe for founders who might be listening in on this interview um, and podcast, if you could give them some advice if you're along the similar journey, but at an earlier stage, what, what would you say? And I know it, this is a very kind of generic question, case by case, et cetera, but given what you've just said, I'd uh, love to get your thoughts on that. I would say the best advice was from what we, I think it was what we got from YC. Fundraising is, you've got to run it as a very tight process. And I think that's why our seed round was, I would say successful because it was a really premeditated kind of approach to fundraising, right? There was a real strategy behind it. There was a real plan. There was a real kind of like course of action. Whereas our pre-seed round was two of us going around begging for money. I'm very And I think that helped. Uh, running a type process means set us up timelines. We were like, hey, within two weeks, we're raising this money. We're speaking. And then we actually you know, put, draw, drew our list of investors, stacked rank them. And then we, I guess, uh, grouped them very tight across a week to speak to everyone as fast as we can. And I could go into detail with a lot more details, sorry about it, but I won't. But it's really just running a very tight process. Everything is uh, pre-planned. Nothing is uh, to chance. And then always have that timeline at the end where, you know, hey, I'm closing in two weeks. Have a chat with the VC and then you go, oh, are you closing soon? Yep, I'm closing in two weeks. And then you create that. I wouldn't say create that formal, but create that kind of, hey, there's a deadline coming. If you're not in, you're not in. And then just be firm about it. And I think that helped us a lot. Uh, we realized like early stage investment for, you would know, right? Like for VCs, it's more like an art than science sometimes. It sometimes a lot of gut feel. How do they feel about the founder? Is there a lot of FOMO going on? Is everyone in the industry talking about this guy? If there is, then I, I better put my money before I regret this, right? So I realized early stage is a lot of this, less about, I guess, like hard metrics. Of course, if you have, then you're even more sexier company. But uh, if not early stage, you know, no metrics, this is usually how I think it's worked well for us. Good. No, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I like to tell some of our portfolio companies also that raising seed capital, raising early stage rounds is, is frequently more about corralling sheep it's about anything else so i think that makes a lot of sense maybe switching gears uh, one thing i wanted to take advantage of since i have your time is you working for some of the biggest fintech companies you're extremely seasoned across multiple countries in, in southeast asia 
and you're now building a, a fintech and payments platform today. What has been the big changes since you first were building payments in Southeast Asia till today? Have there been any kind of big swings and big developments that have been particularly noteworthy? Yeah, wow, huge man. I think early days, 2014, I think. Doing payments is like a cost center to companies. When you talk to companies and you want to talk to payment departments, it's usually finance. Or sometimes finance has no idea and they put you to marketing because marketing has no choice but to take this on as part of their portfolio. But they couldn't, they couldn't care less. Uh, maybe that's a, <laughs> a very straightforward way of putting it. And yeah, even in the salary was tough, right? I had to convince some of the stakeholders that it makes sense to do payments. Why and why not? And then when you want to do partnerships, same thing, right? You face the issues of finding like POCs, point of contacts from different companies to speak to, and they're usually not too savvy about it. But I'm, I, I think fast forward to today, like I think every company has their own like payments team. Right? You have a payments manager, you have an e-commerce manager who looks up the payments. So I, I would say like in general, the everyone is just more savvy about payments. They don't see this as this boring old school thing anymore, which is which used to be like Visa Master, but now it encompasses like all those different ways to pay. So that's one, just human capital leveling up, right? Everyone, every company now understands payments. They have a payments team. They know how critical it is to their success, especially if you're in tech. And then there's the whole talk about like embedded finance, but that's another thing. But what's happened also is like uh, a lot more regulators taking note uh, of what's happened in, in the space in other countries. So especially Southeast Asia. So they've looked at like the US they looked at Europe, they looked at China, and then they know what they don't want to happen anymore. If you look at China overnight, like WeChat Pay and Alipay just became like the, the only way to pay in China. And then all those like fun flow information just disappeared into this black hole that is Alipay or, or WeChat Pay. And regulators have no idea. They just see everything intra-bookings, right? Like for these big companies. So I think a lot of regulators were like really smart about it, right? Came in, regulated the real-time payment space very quickly forced everyone to use their own rails. And I think it's benefited the industry, I would say. It's not closed, it's more open. If you look at India as an extreme example, like UPI, like the ecosystem there is flourishing. And then you look at Southeast Asia, governments are doing the, the same thing. So I, I think it's a very exciting time to, to be in payments because a lot of infrastructure is being laid for a lot of cool stuff that will happen, that will come in, in I say, the next five to 10 years. Because I think Southeast Asia at one point, infrastructure, I guess, was really bad and no one looked at it and there was no innovation. But now because everyone is getting in on the infrastructure play, right? And you're laying the groundwork. And then after this thing has been laid, which is, I would say, to a certain extent, then a lot of these really interesting innovations is going to happen. More and more fintechs are going to come up. Uh, more and more companies will launch their own embedded finance or fintech arms to, to, to innovate on top of all these like, infrastructure that's, that's being built. So yeah, I would say in short, it's uh, payments is just more exciting than it was before. And the potential is just uh, so much more because you know, infrastructure is being laid out and built up by the right players. Got you. No, I think that makes sense. And I, I think your point on payments is always very interesting to me. When I joined Saison, which is a fintech-focused fund, I had a lot of uh, folks paying me and go, hey, why are you in fintech? Isn't payments dead? Isn't payments boring? Next left chin, I think after he sold, PayPal, he was also told repeatedly, I think this was maybe in 2010, told repeatedly that, hey, like payments is done as a topic. And then we see this cycle of people saying payments is dead and then payments suddenly becomes very hard again. 
people say payments is dead and payments comes very, very hard again. Till today, I still hear folks going, well, payments is interesting, but margin profiles are, will go down. And it seems to me like the same thing that you hear 10 years ago. How, how do you, I'm sure you've heard very similar things. How do you treat that? Yeah, I think biggest learning is payments, true to a certain extent, it's a low margin, thin margin. And then people always say that it's done. Like, for example, when I guess like one year ago, if he's 21, you're building a new e-wallet, they, told, they tell you you're crazy in Southeast Asia. Because like, come on, e-wallets are done, right? Who builds a new wallet in the space? And then now you see all these new buy now, pay later players definitely going to launch something like that. You're going to store value, transact instantly, and then they're going to try to disrupt the space. So I, I think that one payments will always be that, what's that classic word called? Like beachhead. It's going to always be that traction product because you're going to be able to reach hundreds of thousands and millions of users instantly with, with a payments product, allowing people to pay for something. And then you're always going to launch something on top of it, right? If it's buy now, pay later, it's, you can pay, but then it'll be credit, instant credit that's split over three months. So that's maybe the new hardest thing that uh, everyone's talking about. Uh, previously, it was you can now store money in, in a wallet from all these different sources, like offline, like we Alphamart in Indonesia or 7-Eleven in Malaysia. And then you can use this digital wallet to transact online. So you see where I'm getting, it's always the same thing. It's like allowing you to transact online. And when you get to a certain like a critical mass or you gain traction, then you start launching things on top of this product. That's what like, I think people have been doing like for many years. If you go all the way back to Visa Master, same thing. Yeah, I just want to, we have this huge infrastructure now. If we launch this plastic thing that lets people pay, people are going to use it. And then they launch so many things on top of it, right? Like loyalty programs, they got people sucked into to points. And then they launch like all these add-ons to just this simple product, right? Which is this plastic thing that lets you transact and pay. Um, so I think it will always happen. The, the fundamentals are always the same, right? You, you allow people to transact, exchange of value, and then you launch like interesting products on top of it. You will always have you know, room to play in the space. Uh, and I think that's the same for, I think like Arrow, where we're trying to allow people or you know, to, to pay in a, I guess, in a faster way, like it's more seamless. You prefer our checkout process, you click, you're out. And then as more people, as we gain traction and more people do this, then we'll be able to launch like more interesting products on top of it, which we're already thinking about. So I think that's, that will always be the nature of it. Got it. I, I think I completely agree with you. If, if, if I understood you correctly, it's about seeing payments and a lot of these basic blocks of the financial um, system as really things that mix. Like for example, just lending and payments being combined together gave you like hundreds of billions of dollars of, of, of startups that were generated from that space. So really shouldn't underestimate that. Hey, and, and look at, for example, payments as just simply a, a very typical ordinary way to, to pay and, and not be able to innovate on top of that. Yeah, exactly. Couldn't put it better. Awesome. No, thanks a lot. Thanks a lot, Neil. This was really interesting. Really great to, to have you on this show and share your views. Super exciting what you've been building. Maybe last question from my side is, I'm sure a bunch of our audience would love to get in touch. What would be the best way to get in touch if they'd like to? to... Yeah, you can always get in touch with me via LinkedIn. We're, we have to be quite active because um, we're always looking for people to join. That's one. Or they can always go through you to get to me. Or, or drop me an email. I guess you can include my email somewhere. <laughs> awesome. Thank you, Neil. It was really great to have you. Thanks, man. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to Voice of Fintech podcast. If you haven't already, check out also voiceoffintech.com where you will find all the episodes and additional resources related to the podcast. 
You can also subscribe to Voice of Fintech on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or any other podcast app that you like. If you have any suggestions on the topics or guests, or how to make this podcast better for you, please email us at info at Happy to hear from you. Thank you.